So they don't want to be the first one to jump out there and pay high prices in early Q1 or mid Q1 if they think it's potentially going to change going into later in the year. And I've seen a lot of little companies that will do just that. They'll start out with one rig in January. In January, there's two rigs. February, you know, they may hold those two rigs. And then March, they go up another. And then next thing you know, Q2, it's like five more rigs out of nowhere. Welcome to Energy Builders, a podcast about the geologists, engineers, roughnecks, entrepreneurs, and many more that are building in oil and gas. Today's guest is Cody Spaulding. Cody is a traveling oil field pipe dealer. That's right, Cody is the owner of Scissor Tail Pipe. He is also the host of the Pipe Club podcast. On this episode, we talk about Cody's journey into the oil and gas industry. We discuss entrepreneurship and hard work. And I think you'll really enjoy this episode. So with that said, here we go. What made you go, eh, you know, I've got all this, the daily grind. I'm going to start recording a podcast also. What what prompted that? Uh, that's a good question. Um, so I was reading a, a book long time ago about sales and uh sales and entrepreneurship <clears throat> and uh there's was a specific piece in there i remember reading and it said uh people need to know who you are basically but whether they like you or they don't at least you're relevant and so uh no one's going to use you if they don't know who you are or see your stuff so i thought well what's the two things right now that's most popular social media and, and podcasts and so it was out of almost out of necessity more than out of interest to do it. And uh, I've done just a handful of episodes now. Uh, like you said, in the day-to-day, in the beginning, I had enough time. Now it's just gotten a little more a little more wild. <clears throat> and the editing and stuff took a lot more than I thought. So, uh, But I still plan to keep doing it. And um, yeah, I, I've had some business come in, meet, met some people such as yourself that I didn't know before just because I did it. So it's just kind of out of necessity. I guess we should say, maybe we should back up and say, you know, tell us a little bit about uh, your business, uh, Scissor Tail Pipe, and how long you've been in business and, and how you got into into the pipe world. Sure. Um, well, Scissor Tail Pipe, I've had now uh, for a little over two years. Started it in 2020 during the downturn. Uh, at that time, I was employed, but we went from multiple rigs to not, to no rigs. And uh, I had a background in use pipe, so that we'll all just kind of start building something as a side hustle outside of work hours when, you know, just kind of build the infrastructure and the accounting legal. And then fast forward to today, I'm doing it full time. But the way I initially got into pipe was uh, back when I was like 19 years old, I, I was going to college and I was broke and I had a, a Honda uh, car that I wanted to pay off really bad. And my dad had always worked in oil and gas. <clears throat> he said, Hey, there's this job in Oklahoma city in a pipe yard. You can work full time for three months. Um, and you can pay that thing off by the end of the summer. And so that was probably the only responsible decision I made in college, but <laughs> I did do it. <laughs> and it was in a pipe yard. I was weeding the, the racks. I was mowing the lawn, taking up the trash, digging ditches, whatever, bottom of the totem pole. And that was kind of my intro into oil and gas and pipe. Yeah. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Like, um, you know, maybe not a lot of people outside the industry thinking about, they think about we drill uh, oil and gas well, and uh, they just think it's a hole in the ground. But let's talk a little bit about tubulars and like the purpose 
uh, of pipe down hole um, and what maybe some different uh, um, uh, some of the different kinds uh, of pipe. Uh, can you give us quick overview? Sure. Yeah. So there's a term called uh, OCTG or oil country tubular goods, and it encompasses a variation of different tubulars that are used in oil and gas. Uh, there's a little bit of an argument on between pipe dealers and distributors on what's really technically included in that OCTG term. But uh, to me, it's tubing and casing. So that's primarily my business. I, I buy and sell new uh, and used tubing and casing um, off wells or yards or whatnot. Uh, so that's kind of my specialty. Um, other tubulars, though, uh, would be like your drill pipe, which is, you know, what drills the hole. And then you pull the drill pipe out and then you go into my market where you, you run your casing. Um, and then it's kind of a switch off process throughout drilling a well. But essentially, you're drilling two lay casing. And then uh, when completions comes through and they want to operate the well and produce uh, oil or natural gas, um, over time, they end up moving to tubing uh, to make the well uh, bore smaller, uh, sometimes for pressure or for what other, whatever other cases. And then the last pipe that kind of jumps out is uh, line pipe, which I know nothing about. Uh, I just know that it's typically green and really wide and beveled, and uh, they stick it in the ground, and that's where they tra transport stuff. But uh, yeah, that's kind of the four main things. There's some other stuff. There's pipe valves and fittings. But in the OCTG market, people think of those things. Uh, me, myself, I think just tubing casing. But Right, right. And in that, we've got surface casing and, and like you mentioned, production tubing. And, and they have different purposes. So so what? So I guess, was, was the stimulus for starting Scissor Tail, was it, I'm out of a job? Was was that it, or or was it a side hustle that grew into your full time business, or was it a bit of both? Um, you know, it was a little bit of both, and I would add a third one, which was a little recreation because uh, it was a lot of boredom in twenty twenty. So there's a little fun involved too. Um, but you know, it's uh, I I worked first. My intro, my first full time job in oil and gas was on the drilling side. And so I worked in uh, top drives, uh, sales, and services. And then I moved into the fracking side. Uh, it's we always the top drive that you've got to service. <clears throat> Something's always. going on with the top drive, always. Yeah, no, yeah, it's no I didn't mean a lucrative business. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, well, I mean, it's just like anything else. Uh, the top drive, like our guys that would work on them, they have to be a diesel mechanic, an electrician, and a hydraulic specialist all at one, right? So you put something like that out on the rig and you expect the, the rig crew to maintain it. They're not all all those three things, plus have been trained on it. So it's one of those things, do you, do you take your car to dealership and get all the 100,000-mile maintenance on it when you're supposed to, like a car? Or do you ignore it and then patch everything as you go? So that's right. kind of the top drive side. And I guess but, you got the whole aspect also. If you're renting one and, and putting it onto a rig, is it all perfectly matching up the way it should? I mean, I mean... I know we've had experiences, you have great experiences where everything works perfectly, where the rig and the top drive were built for each other and manufactured and all go together. And then you have others where it's a Frankenstein and then you have others where you've, you've rented the top drive and it's, it's perfect or they come switch one out. And so, yeah, I mean, us as a, as a drilling operator, I mean, yeah, we've got stories on yeah, all yeah. those fronts. So I'm oh, sure you've got more of them. <laughs> 
Oh yeah, not even the fit, but the power too. Or you want to run hydraulic, or you want electric, and right. which one does it really have? I mean, it's not even just the fit with the turnbuckles; it's actually like the application of the power. So, yeah, right. you're right. It's uh, very complex. Yeah, but uh, I cut but, you off there. Sorry about that. Yeah, no problem. I was trying to think the next. So the next one I went to, uh, yeah, fracking, and I worked for a manufacturing company that that made um, manifold trailers and then uh, frack trailers. The, the larger ones, the when you have, you know, 12 different trucks backed up to the well and they're pumping, uh, pressure pumping. So we built those and did service on those. Um, and then I got laid off. Uh, company got bought out by a drilling company. And at that same time, my father was working at Chesapeake and he had been there for 10 years. And his job was to run around the country and continuously sell off their used tubing and casing. So when he got laid off, he decided, I'm going to start a business and just do this for all the other oil companies. And I didn't have a job, so I joined them. Um, so the intro to the used side of pipe versus the new was almost 100% nepotism. It was just straight from <laughs> good, good luck, good timing. That got lit off. I got lit off. I joined them. Yeah. Um, did that for a few years and then I got recruited into position uh, with a mill that manufactured new pipe, which I had no experience with. And that was getting close to the age he wanted to retire from the company. And I thought, well, I can leave working with dad now. He can retire and I can go work for this large mill and learn the technical side. And I was involved in services. So that's uh, thread reps, running casing, uh, delivering pipe and tallying, drifting and uh, technical issues um, and pipe choices. And I learned a lot as a global company. So Right when 2020 hit and I started that kind of recreational side business, I just started putting all of it together, everything right. I learned. And it only took about six months and I thought, okay, I got to I gotta quit doing this completely or I got to quit my job. And uh, yeah, so I quit my job. They asked me to stick around for four or five months um, just to kind of help with the transition. And here we are today. Yeah, no, that's great. So let's talk about a little bit. I mean, I want to talk about... I want to definitely talk about like pricing, what you're seeing with with pipe and casing and how that is right now. But I also want to talk about sourcing pipe, whether it's uh, I mean, let's talk about reclaiming pipe and and what used pipes uh, and, and selling, you know, refurbishing that and selling that looks like, but also sourcing new pipe um, from mills. Um I'd like to talk about all of that. So I don't care where we jump in. And if, you know, if you, if there's somewhere that you think makes most sense, I mean, let's jump in there, but I mean, let's talk a little bit about all of that. Uh, is there any, where do you want to start? Sure. I mean, I could just talk about a little bit about pricing. I think you mentioned that first. So, yeah. um, you know, the interesting thing about, about pipe is you can look like on, on new pipe, say you're purchasing new pipe for your well, <clears throat> you, have to, you have to purchase, you know, four or five different sizes of pipe and grades and yield strengths and connections. Um, you, it, this market has been really weird the last two years in that you can't look at an average price per ton so much on new pipe um, because there's supply and demand individually just for each item of pipe. <clears throat> and uh, that used to not be so much the case back when we didn't have shortages, um, the whole Russia thing that was, 10 to 20 percent of our imports for all OCTG. I mean, we, and then labor issues, people not coming back. So it's a unique market, and still today, it's it seems that case. You know, you may be able to find surface casing, you may be able to find tubing, but if you want to find a brand new five and a half production string, you know, 23 pound with a 
premium connection on it just laying around. It just doesn't exist. Um, you have to buy it months out and you can't create an RFQ um, and, you know, get bids because the price is going to change potentially in a week or two. So uh, that changed the market. But I have seen the last four months of looking at average prices for distributor and then average prices for end users the last four months. And it's actually steadied off. It significantly increased from December to, I want to say like July. And I'm hoping that it's kind of the end of the year. So cost is going to be interesting. I would say, I don't think it's going to go down. Um, I've caught rumor that there's maybe some mills that potentially could do price increases, but I mean, that's just rumors. Um, you know, when, it, when the pipe market goes into Q1, I don't usually see a ton of activity. It seems usually steady. And then what's going to change the market for the year typically seems like it's going to be the beginning of Q2. So like for me, if I'm, you know, I, I hold inventory of pipe myself on speculation for potential customers. And just into this year, I sold off very minimal I needed to to cover payroll and taxes for the year and kept my inventory because I think that, you know, if I can hold that and not need to make payroll by selling it through Q1, I can make a better profit going into late Q1, early Q2. Um, yeah, so that's some new pipe stuff. Uh, uh, and that's, can you, that? can you t- um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like thinking as a business owner, I mean, you hear, you know, um, I mean, I don't think people think about that a lot of times, like the, the, the inventory, like for you to be able to turn and sell, this isn't something that's getting drop shipped from, uh, from some Amazon warehouse, you know, that's uh, stored by, this is something that you have to go out and negotiate and purchase, but then you've also got to have, you know, the yard to keep it in and the space. And so can you talk about that a little bit, like figuring that out, um, uh, and maybe, maybe you had learned that, I don't know, through your, your working with your father. Uh, what did that look like? I mean, uh, did you have to buy a piece of property? Do you lease? Like what, what was the, I guess maybe some of the entrepreneurial journey of just setting up the business and being able to, to get that all uh, ready to be able to, to transact on pipe. Sure. So, um, uh, when I was in the business with dad, we were a service company. So we, we performed auctions and, and did uh, bid sales and did some brokering on selling operators pipe off for them. So we weren't involved in actually ever really owning any pipe at that time. Um, it was a service charge. We had a, you know, just a base commission that we would tell them, this is our margin we got to make and we'll do whatever you need. And if you don't like it at the end, you can go to the competitor. But that it was pretty straightforward. So there wasn't a whole lot of overhead on that. <clears throat> and then in my business now, as far as leasing space, um, using a third-party yard, I'd say that about probably a little over probably 80% of distributors and, and pipe dealers, uh, such as myself, use third-party yards for storage and reclamation. So um, like you mentioned about leasing, it's kind of like a form of leasing. Uh, uh-huh. Most yards, if you Is it like rack services, space? Is it like you're using rack space that they have? Is that kind of the deal? You're not... It's not a square footage deal. It's rack space. It's rack space. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because every yard's different. You know, you have at the basic level, you have a yard that is just straight storage and the pipe goes in, pipe goes out. And you have yards that do a lot of reclamation work. They may do various kinds of inspections, EMI, SEA. They may do threading. They may do rattling, brushing, cleaning, hydroblasting, steaming. I mean, all kinds of reclamation and those yards, if you use all of their services, typically they won't charge you storage fees. Um, and then you also have yards that are 
trucking yards where they wanted to truck pipe in, truck pipe out. But if you use certain carriers or you use their trucks, then they don't charge you. But if you don't, they charge you. So it's very unique. There's not really a standard. The pipe, I like that about the pipe world. There's not really any rules. Uh, it's kind of wild. Everybody does business different. Um, and it's one of the industries also. I talk to competitors daily, five, five to ten competitors daily. And we're all working towards the same goal, but, you know, with supply and demand, anything in distribution, but especially high uh, volume and uh, high dollar items such as pipe, you're always running out of something and really need it. And then a competitor sells it to you and then vice versa. And uh, it's it's super unique in that way. Gotcha. Gotcha. Very cool. So what, so you're, you're thinking, uh, you're saying first of the year usually stays uh stays pretty chill, but then Q2 gets in. And what is this? Is it just in the year you got people's budgets are getting approved for 2023, their drilling programs are spinning up and Q2 is when they start needing everything to, to show up on location to, 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 to bring all that to fruition. Is that, is that the reasoning there? I mean, I think a lot of it's driven by cost. So the, you know, like the major operators may look at they know they want to drill X amount of wells this year, you know, say 2023, um, but it doesn't matter when they drill it. So they don't want to be the first one to jump out there and pay high prices in early Q1 or mid Q1 if they think it's potentially going to change going into later in the year. And I've seen a lot of uh, oil companies that will do just that. They'll start out with one rig in January. and in January, there's two rigs. February, you know, they may hold those two rigs and then, March, they go up another, and then next thing you know, Q2, it's like poof, five more rigs out of nowhere. They just lock in prices with contracts. So uh, I think it's just a, a cost thing, and uh, it's kind of like playing chess. Whoever figures out what the price is going to be next wins. How much has, has fuel prices affected uh, your business? Like, uh, I mean, trucking, I mean, it's through the roof, right? So how much has that affected you, you know, uh, moving pipe, story, and then passing that on. I mean, do you, are you able to recoup all that? I mean, I assume so, but I mean, how's it affected you guys? Uh, it's, I would say it's gone up probably in the last just year and a half, two years, freight costs have gone up about 40 to 50%. Uh, and then now they've done this 40 to 50% rate increase for hauling a load, but they also have a FSC, I think it's fuel sur surcharge. So it's an additional, you know, some change per mile on top of the actual rate they give you to haul the loads. And it doesn't really hurt uh, my business because, you know, whatever I, if I'm going to buy a pipe off of a location, I'll get my rates for hauling, like sending a forklift out there, sending trucks out there ahead of time after I've looked at the pipe. And then I just include that cost into what I can offer to buy the pipe and then still make my own margin or same margin. I have noticed that rates aren't locked in very long. Uh, it's getting better the last month or so, but man, like before that for like a year, I mean, it was just like steel prices or any kind of quote you get as an operator that could change in a day, you know, by a couple hundred bucks for just one load going across Oklahoma. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's getting better, but it's been bad. Right. Right. 
Well, let's talk about a little bit. I think we I, I jumped around here a little bit, but you you mentioned uh, uh, refurbishing pipe. Uh, what, can we talk about some of the different things? I mean, you talked about that yards offering those services, but like differences in like white banding or red banding or redoing threads. Like, what's some of the common things that 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 um, that, that people who aren't dealing with either purchasing and running pipe or selling pipe like yourself might not know about that would be interesting to know about. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'll talk about production tubing because uh, it's the one that gets changed out of the wells more often. Yeah. Uh, so like, if you're an operator, like, and you have, and I was just out at one last week, they, uh, they were ch- changing a pump out, right? A sub pump and they pull all the tubing out and they get a chance to look at it. Well, say it comes out and they've had leaks and they have splits in the tubing and they have um, thick paraffin on the ID and they don't want to run it back in the well. It has to go to a third-party reclamation yard, or it has to be sold right there on the spot um, to a local rancher or somebody that just comes in and wants to buy it. Uh, a lot of operators that know reclamation and want to work pipe, what they'll do is they'll send that tubing into their third-party yard that they use, um, whether it's like an NOV tubiscope or like a Washita Valley or Frontier Tubular Solutions, and <clears throat> they'll have the pipe worked is what they call it. Um, First step is cleaning the pipe. So if it has a whole lot of paraffin on the ID and a lot of scale on the OD, first thing they got to do is steam it out. Um, so there's a cost. So every little step in a yard to, and, and the interesting thing before I go through this is just keep in mind, I'm going to give you like worst case scenario every step, but sometimes you just need one or two of those steps. And this is where the good pipe dealer comes in because even if you're an operator trying to coordinate this, you know, the yard's going to most likely suggest you do everything but a good pipe dealer can look at the pipe and tell you, you only do have to half of that stuff but just keep that in mind as i go through it but <clears throat> yes you had steam and paraffin out of the id then you may have to hydroblast the id as well um if there's a bunch of scale after it's the paraffin's cleaned out on the id you have to run a rattle through every joint and with an air unit hooked up to it to blow out all that scale and then you run a brush on the od to clean all the od um, and that's just all the tubes. We haven't even got to the connections yet. So if you get to the connections, sometimes they have to be cleaned, um, whether it's a flapper wheel or, or whatnot, and inspected. Um, if they're trashed, then you just wasted your time doing all that cleaning because now you have threads that won't connect. But if they're repairable, you know, they have threading units where they can repair them. But at this point, you know, you know the tube's clean and you know the connection is good. Now you need to know if the connection, well, the connection looks decent. Now you need to test if the connection will fail uh, in an application. And then you need to test the tube to make sure it has enough wall thickness to handle whatever your pressures are for whatever duration of time. Um, so you do a hydro test, which is just screwing bowl plugs on the end of the pin in the box of a tube, pressure it up to an API spec, hold it for an API set of time. Um, and then screw it off. If any water leaks during that process, it's a reject. If it doesn't, it's good. Um, you also have to drift the tube, which is just a cylinder that you run through the tube from one end to the other. You do this so you can get your downhole tools through it. If it has a kink, it's corkscrewed or bent, and drift won't go through it, your tools won't go through it, um, or your rods. So you do that, and then you have to decide as an engineer, you know, look at your pressures and your deviations and decide okay, well, now I know the connections will hold pressure and the tube will hold pressure. But let's say the tensile strength of this tube is, say it's an L80, so 80 KSI tensile strength. 
and you think that only a, a third of a third of the wall has dissipated over time through operating using it you have to do the math to figure out if you want to run that tube into your well and if it's going to be successful so the way you test for that is you run it through an electromagnetic inspection unit uh, there's sometimes two points or sometimes four points it's just the number of places they test the tube but it, the pipe just runs through it and it reads how much wall losses came off of that tube from when it was new spec and i mean it's i started to write a like a pamphlet type type thing on OCTG that I was going to hand to operators, right? Like here's an intro to OCTG. And I ended up writing like 20 pages and I, I felt like I could have gone to 200. So <laughs> it, all, all those little facets of what to inspect, when not, what if something goes wrong, can you use it for something? It's just all experience. It's just, you know, 10, 15 years total combined experience being around it and learning the hard way, losing money, right. um, making bad decisions. But uh, it's the only way you can do stuff sometimes. There's no book on used OCTG and reclamation. But yeah, that's typically what that's typically what an operator does if they they know what they're doing. That's about the process. And they kind of cherry pick. Yeah, yeah. No, that was that was a great uh, rundown of all the the ways to 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 uh, make make that tubing useful again. Um, so, like, let's jump back again a little bit. I think we kind of started there uh, our conversation around like. Um, uh, the podcast. What's your, what's your hopes of, of doing that? I know you said, um, you know, set from a sales perspective, it's necessary to get your name out there. And but what what are you hoping to see happen with it? Maybe in twenty twenty three. You know, I think I, I've started when I first started it. The goal was to interview uh, interesting people and in pipe, whether it's operators or distributors or former coworkers and. I found really quick that people are scared to go on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I had a whole list of people and like every single one, ah, I don't really, not really interested in that. Oh, I'm not so interested in that. So it's kind of interesting. And so that I decided just to start doing videos over subjects. So I did one over like pipe dope and I did one over storing, you know, tubulars and, and racks and uh, some terminology and, I started making a list on my phone and now I'm up to like 50 topics that I can do 20 or 30 minute videos on. So my goal for 2023 is to actually, I'm a few weeks off now, but it's to try to continue doing one like once a week. And what encouraged me to do that was I get a report. Um, her name's Susan Murphy, the OCTG situation. It's a great report. Uh, tons of literature in there monthly on what the pricing's doing and market's doing and uh, check it out. It's like well worth it. But she hadn't seen the field side of, of tubulars. She knows a ton about the market and economics, but she didn't know the field side. And we had a call just for fun. And she's like, I really appreciate those videos. I really like the podcast stuff because I'm seeing stuff that I didn't. It's kind of, she calls it OCTGU, like university. And uh, I thought, oh, I want to keep doing that. And yeah, so that, that's my plan. That, that's great. I don't know if you've uh, met uh, Justin uh, Gaudier or seen his stuff on LinkedIn. He has the Wicked Energy podcast, but mm. they also do. He works for AES Drilling Fluids. And it's same thing, him and another colleague at AES for their podcast, where they're just going over and trying to like break down mud and, you oh, know, yeah. all these. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I think that's great. I think that's a great way to do it, make it a, a, an informational thing. And and then if it's if it's you, uh, you don't have to worry about getting, you know, making the schedules work and 
technology and getting two people yeah. on there. So that's great. I think that's awesome. I, that's um, awesome they do that. I think there should be more of it. You know, there's there's podcasts on the corporate side all the time, but there's not enough boots on the ground. And the only way you can learn boots on the ground, if it's not through a podcast, is to be there. A lot of people aren't going to get the opportunity. So right. I'm glad they're doing that. Yeah, no, no, that's awesome. Well, Cody, I really appreciate you coming on and, and doing the podcast here. Where, where do we send people? Where can people, uh, well, what's the podcast? And then where do people go to find you? The pipe, uh, it's called the Pipe Club Podcast. It's on Spotify uh, and Apple and YouTube. Um, then my, uh, my website for my company and the podcast is either scissortellpipe.com or thepipeclub.com. Uh, and uh, the easiest way to reach me is just call me or text me. It's 405-802-6294. I give it out to anyone and everyone. So uh, if you have pipe on a location or you need to get rid of something for the end of the year to get out of Ad Valerum taxes, you know, you still got you still got two days. Give me a shout. <laughs> awesome. Well, Cody Spalding, thanks for being on the podcast. I enjoyed talking with you, man. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate it. Hey, if you enjoyed the show, please do us a big favor and leave a review in whatever podcast app you listen to or share with someone you think might enjoy this content. Thanks a lot for listening to Energy Builders. Energy Builders.